This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It seems like the Bank of Canada was listening, at least a little, to the growing chorus of people complaining about the record-breaking interest rate hikes it has imposed. So instead of raising rates by 0.75, three quarters of a point, as expected, it increased by less. It increased them by half a percent, but with the caveat that there are more rate hikes to come. This is already hurting people with loans and mortgages. For those living off their savings, interest rates may be up, but the markets have been taking a beating with no end in sight. Portfolios have dropped by thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars, Economists are expecting a recession. Uh, this is the first time the Bank of Canada admitted that that is what is likely to happen. So what can we do to protect ourselves as best as possible? Let me give the numbers out. Please share your strategies if you have them or if you have questions. We have some experts with the answers. The number is to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Leslie Ann Scorgi, founder of MeVest, a leading-edge financial education company specializing in money coaching for Canadians, and Gordon Pape, editor and publisher of the Internet Wealth Builder and Income Investor Newsletters. Welcome to you both. Thank you for being with us. Good to be here, Let us begin with Gordon, because I know that a lot of people who are listening are people who may be retired, who are relying on their savings. You're basically saying, hurry up and lock in some nice, safe GICs with high interest rates. Well, we're seeing interest rates going up uh, quite quickly, obviously, in the wake of what's happening in Ottawa, as far as the Bank of Canada is concerned. We have this um, new increase today of uh, half a percentage point, which, as you pointed out, was uh, less than what was generally expected. Uh, The economists were looking for uh, three-quarters of a percent increase, and so uh, this is um, a bit of a surprise, uh, but um, nonetheless, the plain fact is we're probably going to see more increases down the road. What this is doing, of course, is it's increasing the returns that are being paid on, on fixed-income securities, uh, specifically GICs, Guaranteed Investment Certificates, which have long been shunned by investors because of the fact that interest rates have been so low that uh, returns on GICs or uh, high-interest savings accounts, any of these cash-type vehicles, have been very low. Well, now, of course, we're seeing a rapid turnaround on this. Uh, we we're finding um, some five-year GICs are available in the 5% range. Uh, they'll probably uh, inch a little bit higher after the announcement from the Bank of Canada today. And we're also, interestingly, seeing that um, some of the uh, high-interest savings accounts 
are uh, paying some pretty decent returns, at least decent compared to what they were before. Uh, I noticed that uh, HSBC, uh, which is uh, up for sale, as Canadian operations up for sale, is offering a uh, high-rate savings account uh, that pays 4.25%, and that's um, very unusual, very high, not likely to last for very long. Uh, but uh, these are the trends that we're seeing right now, Libby. And uh, uh, let's go to Leslie-Anne. Uh, on the other side of it, if you're carrying debt, and even a lot of older people are carrying debt, what should you be doing? It's such a, an issue right now because if you are carrying something like a fairly sizable variable rate mortgage that isn't, uh, that does not have like a capped payment, it's not, uh, it's probably like going to be many hundreds of dollars more for you to service that mortgage next month. And then a few more hundred dollars into January because the Bank of Canada is alluding to these rates continuing to increase in an effort to quell inflation. So, you know, what I'm advising is if you are in this position of carrying some of the the, the variable rate debt, uh, you know, shifting gears to see what you can do in your current uh, budget and your current spending to see if you can find any extra dollars because you're going to need them. Uh, to put towards servicing these debts. And, and I'm going to list another one, a home equity line of credit. There's so many people with HELOCs, home equity lines of credit, that are now well exposed to the rising rates. So this is about being very savvy with the money that you do have. Uh, there, There's no way to kind of get around this. You're going to be looking at trimming from other categories in your budget to come up with the extra cash to service the debt. Now, there was a couple of months ago um, a bit of a pivot for those who were on variable rate products. They were pivoting to try and lock in and, and get into some of more fixed products like fixed rate mortgages. Um, and you're starting to see people shy away from even that because the fixed rate mortgages are, are higher. They're, they're considerably higher than they were a year ago. Um, and that's not feeling very good. So this is really about a time of caution. It is about a time of finding extra capital if you've got it. Um, but like Gordon is saying, uh, on the flip side of this, if you have the, the benefit of having some savings here, you can capitalize on the higher rates in your high interest savings accounts, in the GICs. But let's face it, those returns are are not going to outpace the cost of servicing the debt. So if you've got it, you know what? You're going to have to service the debt more than likely. Gordon, um, another thing that you said I found very interesting in terms of these GICs that a lot of people, uh, if they're going to buy that, they look at where the rest of their portfolio is and they say, well, I'm, I'm just going to have everything handy in one place. And you're saying, uh-uh, you got to shop around and, and maybe uh, put it with one of these internet banks uh, that offers a higher rate. Yes, uh, the, uh, the spread of the rates that are being offered is quite significant if you... Um Look at the major banks. For the most part, now again, some of them have specials, and um, that uh, will go ahead and go against the general trend. Uh, 
But if the uh, if you're looking at a major bank, if you're looking at GICs or you're looking at uh, supposedly high interest savings accounts, which the major banks really don't have, uh, but you'll find the rates are much lower than you'll find online at some of these uh, various internet banks like EQ Bank uh, is one example, Tangerine is another example. Uh, there, there's lots of them. There's a uh, website called Rate Hub. That's Rate Hub, all one word. dot ca. That gives you the uh, up-to-date rates of uh, across a wide variety of um, uh, in, investing varieties. Uh, and these include things like the GICs and the bank accounts and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, so I, you can go here to get some information. Uh, I'm curious, though. I mean, don't the big banks have to compete? Don't they want some of that money? Uh, well, <laughs> the big banks are in a much a more enviable position because uh, they have, in effect, a captive audience. Uh, if you're dealing with Royal Bank, you're not too likely, let's put it this way, you'll have to be highly motivated to take the money out of Royal Bank and put it into an online savings bank with which you're not familiar. So I think that they're counting on customer loyalty and also perhaps a bit of um, hesitancy to get involved with new financial institutions. Uh, the other question, Gordon, is, so what do you do? Um, you know, the general advice is if you have a stock portfolio and it's going down, like, you know, don't sell at the worst possible time. But uh, it's when people start doing that, that it looks like uh, the bottom is hit, right? Yeah, well, I think that in terms of the stock market, what the one thing you have to keep in mind is that we've seen... Um, significant decline in the stock market uh, through September and into the early part of October. The market has been rallying rallying very uh, strongly recently, but we're still in a situation where uh, a lot of the good quality stocks are yielding 5 or 6%. You're going to find some bank stocks, for example, with yields of 5% or more. Uh, even Royal Bank and TD Bank, which are the blue chips of the bank stocks, are, are yielding more than 4%. The BCE is yielding more than 6%. The utilities are yielding more than 5%. In other words, you're getting a, a good return on your invested money if you have um, it in, in these, some of these stocks that are, have such good returns. You don't sell into that situation. What you do is you say to yourself, am I getting the, the income that I expected to get when I invested this money in the first place? And if you are, you simply discount the day-to-day movements of the share price, knowing that when interest rates steady and even start to go back down again, those share prices are going to go back up. Uh, and just collect your interest and close your eyes to the bottom line on your uh, on your um, brokerage statement. Okay, well, that that's for dividend stocks, not for the others. Uh, I am going to take a call from Aman in Toronto. Hello. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Great, thank you. Well, I mean, actually, given everything that's going on, not so great. Um, I own a rental property, and uh, you know, in January, my mortgage payment on that one was uh, twenty three hundred dollars a month, and uh, it wasn't a highly leveraged property. It was only for fifty percent LTV, which I think for a, for a rental property that's cash flow positive was a pretty pretty wise decision at, at that point. But now the mortgage payment is around thirty five hundred dollars a month, given the new interest payments, which is about a fifty percent increase. Uh, I know last year the uh, rental rates that we were allowed to increase was capped at 2.4%. So given... Uh-oh. Aman? Uh, I, 
Are you there? Yes. Okay. Uh, we you were cut off for a bit, and I was keen to hear the end of the story. So, uh, what are what are you doing with that then? Sorry. So yeah, the, the rental property that I have, you know, the interest payment, the mortgage payment on that was twenty three hundred dollars a month in January, and now the same mortgage on that one is about thirty five hundred dollars a month, which is about a fifty percent increase. Uh, given that rental rates, you know, our uh, increases are set by the provincial government. Last year was at. 2.4%. Do we anticipate that the government's going to allow us to go, you know, say 20 or 30% this year, given that the mortgage payments have gone up 50%? I can't imagine, but Leslie Ann, do you have a view of that? Yeah, I don't think so. So, I, And you're not a no, uh, alone, Amon. There's a lot of uh, real estate investors who are faced with the same situation where basically their cash flow, their their positive cash flow has been almost eliminated, if not fully eliminated, and they're in a negative position. So it's unlikely that the rental increases are going to uh, change, like the allowable increases. Um, but we will see, right? Stranger things have happened. I just don't think uh, there's going to be any lift in protecting uh, renters from rent increases. Okay. Thanks for that, Aman. Uh, Thank you. Uh, there's a, uh, yep. Okay. That worked. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, one of the ideas is, uh, to, uh, stop investment, uh, so people can buy houses. And if you're trying to sell your rental property, I think prices have been dropping. So, uh, that is another effect of this for people, uh, who have been kind of operating in in the economy that no no longer exists. That's right, and we have a situation where a lot of investors got in um, kind of at peaking prices through 2019 to 2000 mid 2022, and we're starting to see some calls in the market that housing prices could come down anywhere from 15 to 35 percent. So those who kind of got in to either investment real estate or into primary residences, um, if they weren't on a fixed rate, uh, which means they can kind of control their cash flow, if they weren't on that fixed rate, um, they are looking at a situation where the cost to service any property is going up. And if you're an investor, you just have your hands somewhat tied with what you can do on um, certain tenant agreements and and pricing. So it's really, really important here. uh, If you're in that position where you have a rental property, uh, that you're very close to your numbers. Uh, if you do need to consider locking into a rate that you have good guidance on your side that tells you that that's a good idea, but it's not uh, looking all that good. If you wanted to offload that property at the present moment, um, you know, we would generally advise that we kind of pull through this first and, and see where we land in 12 to 18 months from now. Gordon, you were talking about dividend stocks where people are still, they're still getting dividends, but what about other stocks? Well, I think in terms of uh, our listenership, dividend stocks is where they should be. Uh, and um, if other stocks are regarded as, as being highly speculative uh, at this point in time, because um, you're relying entirely on capital gains to uh, fuel your profits, and the market is 
telling us that perhaps that's a pretty risky area to be depending on right now. Um, if you're in that position, uh, obviously I wouldn't advise, it's a good quality stocks, of course, I wouldn't advise selling them. Uh, but perhaps um, when the market settles out, you should be reviewing your portfolio and saying to yourself, well, do I really want to be in a very uh, leveraged stock portfolio or a stock portfolio that is not generating a significant amount of income, or should I be changing my priorities? Well, one of the unusual parts about uh, the market today is that usually if stocks are bad, bonds are good, but bonds are no good. Um, Well, uh, sorry, say that again? Bonds. Bonds aren't, uh, they don't seem to be a, a good asset to hold at the moment either. No, bonds are, uh, have been a disaster. In fact, uh, the, um, the economists are saying that this is the worst uh, bond bear market that they've ever seen. Uh, there was a pretty bad bond bear market back in the early 1980s. I remember it very well uh, because uh, that's when I made my first big investment in bonds when we had um, interest rates up around 16, 17, 18 percent. Mortgage rates were in the 20 percent range. And uh, I invested in uh, five-year, uh, no, 10-year Government of Canada strip bonds. And when interest rates went down, those bonds went up tremendously in value um, because what happens is when uh, yields uh, rise, uh, prices fall and vice versa. So this may be, we're maybe coming up to an opportunity to invest in long-term bonds again, but it's a bit of a speculation right now. And um, I would say watch the market, uh, and if it looks as if interest rates are stabilizing and are not going to move significantly higher, and we didn't get that message from the Bank of Canada today, but if that situation comes around, then look at investing in things like 10-year bonds. Uh, They might have a nice price appreciation in the next two or three years. Leslie Ann, if people are holding mortgages... Is it an idea to increase their amortization to lower the payments if that's an option? Yeah, so where where we're seeing people make a little bit of progress on these fluctuating mortgages, so the variable rate mortgages, are when they're able to put a bit more toward the principal balance. So some of the techniques that you can use to do this is shrinking the, the amortization period, which means your payments are going to go up, uh, but they're going up anyways, and more of the payment would hopefully go toward the principal balance. You're also seeing people take advantage, if it's available within their mortgage contract, taking advantage of weekly accelerated payments. So again, putting a little bit more toward the payment, uh, the payment itself, but more on the principal and less exclusively toward the interest. And then the other thing that you're going to see more of is you're going to see people who have flexibility in their budget. So they, they have excess cash on hand, they are taking a look at things like double up payments, lump sum payments, again, if it's available in the mortgage contract. So, Leslie Ann, I was actually asking about the opposite. If people are strapped and uh, they're they're feeling really tight, can they extend the amortization to lower the payments a bit? 
Yeah. Okay. And there, and therein lies another aspect. So if there's flexibility in the mortgage contract, which you have to look at the terms and conditions, some people can push the, the length of their mortgage out. Usually that is upon a, re- a renewal window within a typical mortgage contract. But it depends on the contract. So yes, it's it's definitely an option. But I would say, you know, if you're not um, if you're not super strapped, uh, you probably want to keep pace and keep on track with paying as much as you can right now. Um, but if you are are unable to take a look, call your lender and see what kind of flexibility they have in the terms and conditions within your mortgage. What else do you think when you look at people's household budgets, where are easier places to cut? So where we're seeing people get extra creative right now is is they're they're going line by line in their budget. Everything from groceries, choosing to to shop at a, a lower cost grocery store to renegotiating cell phone, internet, cable packages, bundling those together, bundling home and auto insurance policies together in an effort to save. We're seeing households look at all discretionary spending. So, you know, the fun stuff in the budget and um, start to make choices around whether it makes sense to continue with some of those recurring subscriptions and, you know, Peloton subscriptions, whatever, whatever it is. So I actually think that there is, it, it's prudent every year to, to get into your budget and get rid of things or renegotiate uh, certain components of the budget that could possibly produce savings. Let me be so clear right now. Every dollar that you save can be redirected towards your mortgage payment, your HELOC, if that's what you're looking at. And the other area I'd say is very hot, really good idea is if you have any consumer debt, making sure that that is coming together through a consolidation process to a lower interest debt. That can save hundreds, if not thousands of dollars in a monthly budget. All of that counts. The other technique I think is very creative right now. I actually see the most creative budgeting, um, I think, in my entire career, and it's happening right now. (laughs) People are getting very creative. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of people make choices that are bigger, such as moving to a smaller, lower-cost home and even renting their home out, renting out rooms in their home. Uh, renting out parking spaces. Hmm. Um, it's it's pretty creative. I have, you know, I've got one student who was typical pandemic, uh, purchased a trailer during the pandemic to go camping, and now she is turning around to sell that trailer. Interesting. Um, after, Very yeah. interesting. Uh, yeah. Gordon, is this a time to reevaluate, rebalance a portfolio, or is it best to wait until things settle down? Well, if you have a, uh, a good quality portfolio that you put together with a plan and um, you're satisfied with the quality of the uh, stocks that you hold in the portfolio, uh, I certainly wouldn't shake it up right now. Uh, the only portfolio I'd shake up right now is one that um, is really not well-conceived, has not been put together with your long-term interests in mind, and which is taking a battering in the, the markets that we've been experiencing. 
uh, then I would I would look at it. Uh, although selling it at uh, at a loss at this stage of the game uh, is a pretty hard bullet to bite. Uh, but uh, maybe something you have to do if the portfolio itself is not well well put together. But for most people, I'd stay with what they have and uh, just try to ride this out. Mm-hmm. And do you have uh, any theory on what the timeline is going to be? Gee, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who could predict the timeline would be uh, would be a genius. Uh, we have to look at what the Bank of Canada said today. Uh, they're, they're saying that uh, we're going to um, 50-50 move into a recession next year, early next year, uh, and that uh, the economic growth in uh, 2023 is only be, going to be 0.9%. So that's really borderline to a recession. Uh, and in that case, uh, then you'll probably find the markets will begin to uh, ease a bit. Uh, when we get into the recession, that's when they're going to rebound. They're not going to rebound when we come out of the recession because the markets are forward indicators. They'll rebound sooner than that. And so I would guess, that we would certainly probably start to see a rebound by uh, the end of winter. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's not bad news. Uh, Leslie Ann, what would you like to leave us with? I'm with Gordon. I want to be really hopeful here. And I think that's what people need right now. Uh, we all need to believe that, that things are going to get better. I want to touch really quickly on the upcoming pressure to spend amidst the holidays. And uh, 30 is, seconds. We have only 30 seconds left. Go okay. ahead. Okay. So I would just say, be mindful. This is the time where, you know, keeping your hard-earned money is really important. Watch those investments. Steer clear of the debt and do try to enjoy yourself. We will get through this. Okay. A good message. Thanks so much, Leslie Ann Skorgi and Gordon Pape. We appreciate your time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, uh, we are taking a break. And when we come back, uh, we are going to talk about sweeping new legislation to govern housing and zoning unveiled late yesterday afternoon. We're still digesting the details, but we will try to figure out what it means when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are still digesting the sweeping new housing legislation unveiled by the Ford government yesterday afternoon. The idea is to speed up the construction of new homes by dropping some rezoning requirements and fees paid by developers. The province has a goal of one and a half million homes to be built by 2031 with 285,000 earmarked for Toronto, 120,000 for Mississauga and 113,000 for Brampton. Homeowners will be allowed up to three units on their property. So one residential lot could have a home with a basement suite and a laneway unit in the backyard. Uh, So what does it all mean? Is it 
a matter of just giving free reign to developers? And what about those fees? So who is going to pay to create the infrastructure needed to support all those new people moving in? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's go to Dr. Brian Doucette, Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion at the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo and Frank Clayton, Senior Research Fellow, the Center for Urban Research and Land Development at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello. Hello. So, so far, the reviews for this have actually been pretty positive. Do you agree, Frank? Uh, I agree. Uh, the uh, <laughs> Uh, the the province is basically doing everything that uh, what I would call the progressives uh, wanted. Uh, they 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 they're they're, they're focused on the uh, existing uh, housing stock and getting more you know densifying the existing housing stock and uh, there's a lot of support for that and there's a lot of support for more housing. I think even the the Globe Mail and the Toronto Star have come out in support. We know in studies by CMHD and and uh, the the Home Builders Associations have all showed that there's a you know, we're, we've been underproducing housing, particularly non-high-rise types of housing. So uh, I, think, I think it's all very positive. Uh, I'm not surprised that the Home Builders Association are happy. Uh, Dr. Doucette, is this giving too much sway to developers? Well, let's take a step back for a second. We're talking about a housing crisis, right? We've been talking about it for a few years. And when we start to get into the details of what that means politically, it it's very much a middle-class housing crisis, which is real, right? People who make good incomes who five, ten years ago would have never imagined that they wouldn't be able to afford a place to live are now victims of a housing crisis. But if we take a step back further, we've seen housing crisis for people on minimum wage, living wage, ODSP for, for decades, if not centuries. And these are people who are struggling with genuinely affordable housing. What a lot of the proposals in this bill will do is address some of those middle-class concerns about housing, right? People who make $100,000 a year and can't afford to buy something in Toronto may have some more options, although whether or not it produces housing for them is, is still uncertain. But for people who are on lower incomes, the working poor, marginalized communities, this will do very, very little to, um, to create more supply for them. And it may actually erode some of the housing that's already affordable to those uh, on low incomes. Uh, Frank, yeah, I've seen that that criticism. Uh, basically, the theory is that that uh, uh, developers or landlords will take the opportunity if they own uh, low income housing to uh, upgrade it. Uh, there, there's some of that. It's called financialization in the the, uh, the academic literature right now. <laughs> but uh, I agree. Uh, the, there's two affordability problems, uh, and the affordability problem of low-income people have been been with us. And if uh, CMHC has something they calculate called the core housing need, and a percentage of all the households in the Toronto region or in the, uh, that uh, are in core housing need really hasn't changed since 1991. So we're not making that problem any better, but we're not. Uh, it's not getting any worse. But by t- helping the middle-income class of people, you provide more units for the lower income because it takes pressure off 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 them. And besides that, I think most economists would agree that the problem of lower-income people uh, for housing is not you know it's not a, uh, a a shelter problem. It's not a housing problem. It's an income problem. Their incomes are too low. So, okay, that's the way to attack it. 
Okay. If I could, if I could just respond for for a moment, because one aspect of this, you know, that what what Frank's talking about is the idea of trickling down, right? So you build more, uh, you know, middle class housing, and then things filter down. But there's one aspect of this bill that's particularly worrying that actually does the opposite, reducing the requirements that cities like Toronto have to replace affordable rental units that are lost when a building is demolished. So any unit, any building that has more than six units that's demolished for redevelopment. Um, those affordable units have to be replaced. So reducing that actually creates not only a huge incentive to just knock down as much affordable rental rental housing and build higher-end units, but it actually doesn't then produce any new units that are affordable. And a lot of the work that we've been doing here locally in, in Waterloo Region has really been looking at this erosion of housing that's affordable to people on low, moderate, and to some extent even middle income. Okay, let's take a call from Kate in Toronto. Hello, Kate. I just want to make a comment. The government, the provincial government, owns all these LCBO beer stores, do they not? Uh, yeah. Yes. And those beer stores down in downtown Toronto in my area are one-story buildings with huge parking lots that out-of-town people drive into and park their cars free all day. Why are those buildings allowed? The government could build high-rises on top of those beer stores and use the parking lots as a, as a play area park for the people who would then live above the beer store. That would give a lot of affordable housing if okay, the poor Kate, government really I, wanted to do so. Okay. I, There's a I suggestion. Think, I, well, I think Kate is really hitting the nail on the head of something that we don't talk about but has huge potential. Provincial governments, local governments, uh, other public agencies own huge swaths of land in our cities. Um, whether it be land that's just owned as a school board, that no, school no longer needs it, or existing functions like very low-density LCBOs. And there's a lot of discussion, and also in this bill, of trying to say, well, let's sell this land, let's have developers build on it, let's just build, build, build more housing. But if we circle back to who are we building housing for, this publicly owned land is a huge huge potential to build the kind of housing that the market is unwilling and unable to build because the land is already in public ownership. Nonprofit housing, rent geared to income housing, larger units, a range of tenures. We can be so creative with it. Well, they've said just- they, they have said they want to do that. Frank? Uh, yeah, just just about the LCBO quickly. Uh, LCB, LCBO, most of the stores are on lease, uh, on uh, land owned by somebody else, so it's not owned by the provincial government. Uh, but I, I, I agree to, uh, that we should be making greater use. So we're doing a, a research right now for CMHC, uh, which is basically comp- compiling an inventory of all government-owned land uh, in in the Toronto region. Uh, and that's the purpose of it, to, to uh, identify sites and have more housing. Uh, the one thing I would say is if we're going to put affordable housing on government-owned land, I would never sell the land. I would lease it for 20, 99 years. But, uh, and then the, the land comes back to the government, and they can keep the housing affordable. Uh, most cases, the land goes to the you – know, if it's a field, and when the housing gets worn out and so on, it gets rebuilt so to higher densities by the developers. Uh, so I would uh, agree with with what Brian and uh, and, and your caller said, but uh, uh, but never never sell land. At least that's the Absolutely. way to go. I, I have a, a a question and something I did not see in this legislation. Um, does this affect uh, heritage designations? 
I saw a reference to that. What's been happening is that local ratepayer groups have been using heritage uh, uh, um, regulation to to uh, to, uh, to you know keep from having densification in their neighborhoods, having redevelopment taking place. That's, a lot uh, so of people say that, but I, there is something that there is something there to that. Uh, but I'm not I'm not sure what it is exactly. Frank, do you? Okay. Yeah, no, I'm um, not sure if there's anything. Um, I, I'm not sure the, the the detail of it. Uh, but Frank does make a, a good point of you know one of the things that this bill is doing that I actually think has some benefit is trying to limit some of those third party appeals. So people who have no actual stake in the development of a pro- of, of, of a property who happen to live nearby or something have been able to slow down and sometimes hold up the development of, of new housing. And that's, you know, that's not good for getting houses built, um, although you still need to strike a balance of ensuring that people have opportunities to participate um, in, in the system. And yeah, have they, they're also going to limit the number of public meetings and public consultations and also limit uh, input from conservation areas. Yeah, that one is, is a little bit concerning in the sense of one of the things that um, conservation authorities are no longer allowed to consider is the impact of pollution or uh, land conservation on new development. And so there's been a lot of talk in the media about this being very much a pro-density kind of bill, allowing up to three units as of right, encouraging more density around transit. But the flip side to it is it's actually a very pro-sprawl bill as well, that if we can't consider the impact of pollution, the impact of, of land conservation on, on new housing, we're going to end up with huge swaths of, of countryside that are just sprawled over, not necessarily with super dense developments, but with these big monster homes kind of tucked away and um, eating up valuable farmland, wetlands, um, you know, environmentally significant land, if we can't consider those things. So it's, a, it's got both. It's got the density, but it's also going to lead to a lot of, a lot of sprawl without... Uh, yeah. I disagree. I disagree that. with Brian on that. The growth plan is... There's also a growth plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe, and that plan is still in effect, and that has minimum densities on the... Uh, on the greenfield lands or lands that aren't in the build-up uh, areas. And uh, there's, there's not going to be a huge amount of sprawl. I mean, the lots are going to be very small. There's going to be townhouses, stacked townhouses. And so I don't call that sprawl. Now, let me ask what I've seen, uh, say, in a suburb like Etobicoke, where Doug Ford lives, uh, developers will buy a single-family lot, and they'll put up two really expensive houses on it. So uh, is, is is that kind of thing covered? I mean, it's one thing to say you can build up the three with a little laneway house and a basement suite, but uh, does this mean that uh, a developer could buy a house, knock down, uh, either knock down or whatever, and build three uh, luxury houses on a very small lot? Uh, well, typically, uh, developer, uh, the, the reason why a developer builds, uh, uh, replaces a house is because that's, that's what zoning requires. Uh, sometimes they can get a semi in as opposed to one house, but they have to go through a whole process and the ratepayers association gets up in arms and so on. So I, I think when you, uh, uh, by allowing at least three units on, you, you at least slow that down. Uh, you know, somebody can sell a house, you know, instead of selling the house to a developer, they can actually put a basement suite in their unit and maybe have an, another unit on the property and make some money off it. Uh, um, my view is that the way to go is to uh, allow uh, develop, developers of buildings, of, of rental buildings are up to uh, four stories 
to b- go in and buy four or five houses, and uh, and the owners make a lot of money off that. They, they uh, and then uh, have we'll get more uh, less expensive homes being built in the uh, in the um, um, you know three or four story apartment buildings. Mm. Yeah, the, um, the 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 proof will be in the detail of it because yeah. it says up to three units, uh, and it gives the example that you cite of the basement suite and the laneway suite. Um, the devil will be in the detail in terms of will you be able to build a triplex, right? That's three units on that single family. You know, if you knock down an old single family home, a bigger issue though is. You know, a lot of other places have done this. Even where I live in the city of Kitchener, we now have up to three units basically as of right on any property. And there's very little evidence to suggest that this kind of approach to housing creates large numbers of new units that are affordable to people who need it. I mean, you give the example of, you know, one single family home and you replace it with two luxury homes. Um, that tends to be what happens. So it, again, it's adding housing, which is good. I mean, every housing researcher will say our housing needs to grow with the population uh, growth. But the question of who is this housing for and who is going to have access to it also needs to be really central in terms of how we're uh, focusing on addressing the housing crisis. Okay. Uh, And I suspect, I suspect I know how that will go. But uh, in the meantime, thank you so much, Frank Clayton and Dr. Brian Doucette. Thank you. You're welcome. We're taking another break. And when we come back, you know that dental program that the federal government is going to introduce, the one where lower income people are going to get a check for dental uh, work not covered. Uh, Well, there's a warning from the parliamentary budget officer, and we'll talk to him about that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have a warning from the Parliamentary Budget Office about potential fraud and increased cost of the new dental program. The program that was key to NDP support for the minority liberal government. In order to get the cash... Canadians will only have to attest that they have received or plan to receive dental services not covered by an insurance program. And the bill includes a new dental care benefit for children under 12 in low and modest income families and a one-time $500 allowance for low-income renters. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, let me give the numbers out again. If you have a question, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'd like to welcome Yves Giroux, the Parliamentary Budget Officer. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. So uh, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, we don't have the details yet of how the program will be administered, even though senators asked these questions yesterday to various officials. Uh, but the fact that public service, the public service or, or, or the legislation rather, is stating that uh, applicants only need to attest that they either have or will um, incur expenses for their children age 12 and under 
for dental services without a very thorough application process suggests that um, there could be abuse depending on how much uh, how the program is administered. And when senators asked officials yesterday how much will it cost to administer, they didn't get a straight answer. In fact, I don't think they, they got an answer that was that was anywhere close to providing a number. So it may be that it'll be very thoroughly administered, but it may be that we may be in a world where it will look more like the CERB program where applicants were applications were received and checks were issued quite quickly without a lot of verification. So we don't have these details yet. Well, um, I would imagine that uh, probably we don't have all the, or the government doesn't have all the extra staff needed to properly check these claims. I mean, if you have an insurance program, you know, they, they have very large staffs of people making sure that they aren't giving you anything you are not entitled to. That's a a very valid point. And with the proposal uh, that's before the Senate right now, uh, the amount paid will not be commensurate with the the amount paid under the benefit, will not be commensurate with the expenses incurred. So, for example, if you go with your child for a cleaning at the dentist and it costs you $150 or $200, that's sufficient to uh, to entitle you to six hundred and fifty dollar uh, in, in benefit if you're in the low income bracket, in the lowest income bracket by the definition of the legislation. So you don't have to incur six hundred and fifty dollars in medic or in dental expenses to qualify for six hundred and fifty. So for those earning seventy thousand dollar per year or less of family income. You qualify for six fifty per year, regardless of the actual expenditures. So it can be very low expenditures rela- relative to to the benefit, and still or no expenditure. No expense. Well, but that in that case, that would be fraud. But it's possible that you say yes. My plan is to go to the dentist with my kid. You get you apply, you get the check, but you change your mind. You never go to the dentist. So there will certainly be cases like that. Uh, I'm looking at this one-time $500 allowance for low-income renters. So does that mean they would be eligible for 500 bucks over and above the 650? Um these are yeah, these are different programs, but you could be you can find families that are in situations where they have a kid under 12, they qualify because of their income. But they also qualify for the, um, the 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 rental benefit. So it there could be situations where families with low income, for example, and, and children under the age of twelve, qualify for both the six fifty per child and five hundred dollars for the the rental benefit. Do you have so so the number that we've seen before was uh, on the order of of seven hundred million for. Seven hundred and three million for the program, but do do you have uh, an estimate on how much it could actually go? Well, we have assumed that the government will use significant resources, not not immense resources, but about thirty five million dollars to administer the dental benefit, and we have not factored in fraud. So we have looked at the number of children under twelve 
in families at the income level that would qualify them for the benefit. So we have not factored in fraud. So, for example, children that would not be eligible because their parents already benefit from private insurance or public public sector insurance. Uh, but it could, depending on the behavior and fraudulent applications, it could be a couple of million more. Uh, that will depend on how strong and thorough the administration of the program is by the CRA and by Health Canada. Hmm. Uh, in, in general, uh, what do you think of uh, designing a program like this? I mean, it seems in this case... The only hurry was getting the NDP to support the government, unlike the CERB, when there was an obvious, tangible, real, desperate need to get some money out the door. Is this a good way to structure a program where you just put up your hand and say, uh, give me this cash, please, I need it? Well, it's a very blunt way to deliver benefits. And as I mentioned, the amount paid by the government will not be directly related to the expenses incurred for dental care. So it is indeed a very blunt instrument because there will be many, many cases where expenses incurred are significantly lower than the benefit, but there will also be other cases where expenses incurred will be higher than the benefit. So it is indeed a blunt instrument, but it's one way of sending checks quickly even though it's not perfectly targeted at the needs of individual children. So is that the best way to uh, launch a program? Uh, It's blunt, it's relatively quickly, but it's not far from it. It's far from being perfectly targeted because it will overcompensate some and undercompensate uh, a couple of families as well. So the quick, that's a long answer to say it's probably not the best way. Is it the fastest way? Yes. But the best way? Probably not. Well, it's supposed to be followed by an expansion of the program to others uh, who are over 12, to uh, older people. Do you know, is it con- is it contemplated to be rolled out in the same way? And, and doesn't this, uh, you know, expose taxpayers to a huge costs. Well, that's that's a good point. I don't know what's envisaged for the subsequent phase or phases of the dental care program. Uh, I hope as a taxpayer that it will be better targeted and better designed because then it will cover a broader proportion of the population. So in the interest of sound administration of taxpayer dollar, it, it should be a more targeted, better designed program now that the government has more time to properly design and prepare itself for the rollout of subsequent phases. Um, Anything else that you would like to leave us with on this? Uh, No, I think you've asked all the interesting questions, and I'm sure uh, the, the audience or the listeners have probably a lot of questions still, but I hope I was able to provide some answers as to our perspective on this program. Okay. Yves Giroux, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, thank you so much for that. My pleasure. Bye-bye.
Well, uh, another opportunity for a boondoggle, in my humble opinion. Uh, and again, you know, you can understand why the Serb was sent out the door so quickly. But in this case, the, the urgency was definitely of a political nature because uh, the Liberals before that were dithering on pharmacare, dithering on dental care. Uh, so um, we'll have to see how that one turns out. But as always, it will be the taxpayers that pay. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.